Well, hey guys, good morning. Uh, I'm Kevin, and today we are continuing in our study of Nehemiah, who somehow 2,500 years later or so still has so much to teach us about what it means to be a leader in the East Bay in 2018. Uh, we are going to be talking about um, Nehemiah 6 through 8 today, and there's kind of a lot that happens. And so I'm gonna start with just a really quick cliff notes of all the, the things that actually happen in our text, and then later on we're gonna actually dive into what it means. So, in Nehemiah 6, uh, Nehemiah faces some haters, some folks that are trying to distract him, to deceive him, to get him off of his mission, and he just Heismans them, keeps them away, stays eyes on the prize, and finishes the wall. In 52 days, Nehemiah finishes the wall. That ha- guys, we've been talking about the wall for 10 weeks, and it happened while I was teaching. So, not saying I built the wall, but I'm not saying I didn't build the wall. Then, it's chapter seven, and a less spiritual person than me might say that it's just a list of names, and you should probably skim it. I'm not saying that. When I read a list of names in the Bible, it's a deep spiritual experience where God speaks to me, and I learn so much about his character, but you probably don't, so you should probably skim it. I skimmed it. Anyway, chapter eight is where we're gonna spend most of our time today. Um, In chapter eight, fresh off of the the success of completing the wall with the wind at his back, with all the credibility that he has from everybody, uh, all of the Israelites, the diaspora that came from all over the world, the people that had been there wishing, hoping that the wall would get created. Nehemiah takes that moment and he gathers the people and they read scripture together and they rediscover a festival called Sakat. So, Here is the takeaway for today. This is the lens through which we are going to be reading this entire uh, uh, section. Great leaders know that why is greater than how. Why is more important than how. Why comes before how. We should spend more time in why than we do in how. People might be really impressed with what you do or even how you do it, but they're going to be really inspired when they understand why you did it. And I think case in point today, we're gonna spend a bunch of time talking about this section and we're gonna brush right past the fact that Nehemiah finished the wall because we're gonna be talking about why he did it. Today is all about the word why. And by why, I mean, I mean what is your purpose? Why do, you, why do you get up in the morning? What's your cause? Why does your organization exist? What is your littler slice of the big story that God is telling. That might be an answer you have for your whole life, like I've always known that this was my mission and the thing I was put on earth to do, and that hasn't changed. I feel like for me, it's a little bit more like in seasons. This is why I have this opportunity right now. This is why I have this relationship right now. And this is how I can connect that why to the big why of what Jesus has called his people to do. God gives us our sort of flavor of the big why, the big mission, and we translate that into our lives. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today and studying Nehemiah's why. So let's go back to the very, very beginning of the story. Our story starts with Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, which is this incredible job. 
He's in every room that matters. He's in the room where it happens. He, he gets to have all of the uh, sort of influence and access, but like none of the responsibility, which I think is a pretty cool gig. And even in the middle of theoretically the dream job of dream jobs, he gets the news about his people and their city and the wall. The wall is broken down, but more importantly, the people of God are broken down and their sense of identity is in question and they don't remember who they are and they're scared and afraid and forgetting who they are. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. And that is the moment when he discovers his why, his mission, his purpose. The calling that God has put on his life, he discovers it right then. It's his, uh, your mission should you choose to accept it moment, happens right here. And from this moment on, for the rest of the story, he is laser focused and on a mission. And if you think about all the things, the obstacles that he faced, it's, his focus is so impressive. First, he has to organize all of the resources required to do a gigantic construction project hundreds of miles away from where he is. He's mocked and misunderstood from the moment he shows up. He has to rally a group of people, many of whom don't know each other because there's a bunch of people that were there at the beginning and then there's this diaspora of people coming home and he has to create a sense of identity for them and common purpose and rally them towards this thing of building the wall and then in the middle of what should be this 80s movie montage of like rebuilding the rec center where everybody's like high-fiving and the work's getting done and we're all happy and like, like two weeks worth of work gets done in like an hour, like that, in the middle of that moment, the powerful inside of his own community are doing what the powerful always do and they're taking advantage of the powerless and he has to deal with that, a group of people totally missing the point. There's threats on his life and others' lives. He's being distracted and deceived and disrupted from the moment he shows up but despite all that, he is myopically focused on his why. His tactics are constantly shifting. How he does what he's doing, what he's doing, shifts all the time because the way you address injustice or the way you address being distracted, like those are very different tactics. But the reason that he's able to stay so focused and accomplish something insane, building this wall in seven and a half weeks, is because he's so focused on his North Star. He's saying, I don't, there's all this stuff happening around us, I don't exactly know how I'm gonna deal with this, but I know we're going that way. So then he finishes. He builds the wall. 52 days. Like, it's incredible, right? So you'd think, put a check mark next to Nehemiah's Y, right? Like, you, you did it. You did, your heart was broken, and then you went, and you showed up, and you did the thing. So then the book of Nehemiah should be over, right? Like, we did it. But it turns out that it was never really about the wall. Let's read chapter eight. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. 
I think it's so important in this moment to realize that if Nehemiah is the high level leader that he has proven himself to be throughout this story, one thing that he is keenly aware of is the relational capital that he has in this moment. What I mean by that is he just showed up and accomplished something that they had been trying to accomplish for years. And this white knight just rode in and solved all the problems and restored their sense of identity, restored their sense of safety, of community. This guy just came in out of nowhere and fixed everything. Like he's a miracle worker. And so in this moment, the people of Israel would have walked through flames for this guy. Anything he asked them to do, they were gonna do because this guy had the answers. He proved it with the results. He could just point at the scoreboard and say, you guys need to follow me because look what happens when you follow me. So in this moment, when he has all the wind in his sails, I think what he chooses to do tells us so much about what drives him, about his real purpose, his real mission, his real why. So why was it so important to use this moment to open the Bible? Because Nehemiah's why wasn't about the wall. Nehemiah's why is about reminding the people of God who they are. The wall was a means to that end, but the real answer to that question, who you are, is in these books. And so let's open these books together. Great leaders remind us of our why. Sometimes a leader reminding a people of their why can look really big and dramatic. History loves these moments and we remember them. This was a big sort of dramatic moment for Nehemiah in the middle of all the celebration and everybody's so excited and then they get together and Ezra's up on a platform and they're reading the law and they're interpreting it and they're celebrating it and they're discovering who they are. It's a big cinematic dramatic moment. And a lot of times it looks like that. I think about Lincoln at Gettysburg saying, guys, four score and seven years ago, we talked about what we wanted America to be, and it turns out we were missing this really big piece of what it means to have freedom and justice and liberty for all. Turns out that these African-American people are Americans too, and we need to start treating them like that. He was calling to who they were and why they exist. I think about Dr. Martin Luther King about 100 years later, saying, hey guys, you know how we've talked about the American dream? Well, I have a dream. I'm gonna call you to who you are and I'm gonna call forth the best in you and unite us around something that's bigger and more important and speaks to our identity. I think about Churchill in the middle of the German bombing raids of World War II where all of London would be blacked out. There'd be no power to London because they didn't want the German bombers to even have the light inside of the buildings to guide their bombs. A whole city of people is terrified. They can hear bombs falling. They can hear people screaming. And Churchill is up on the roof of a building giving radio broadcasts, saying, I'm not afraid. We as a people are not afraid. This is who we are. I think about, in a modern context, I think about Malala, this young woman who was shot in the face because she had the audacity to believe that women should get an education. And despite that, she recovered and has been this phenomenally eloquent and inspiring champion for the rights of women all over the world. 
probably my favorite example of this. I mentioned Dr. King earlier. On the night that Dr. King was murdered, uh, Robert F. Kennedy was scheduled to give a speech in Indianapolis. And because he was a presidential candidate, he had access to information pretty early. He knew earlier than a lot of these other folks know. This wasn't the Twitter era where everybody kind of finds out at the same time. And his advisors were telling him, you can't give this speech. People are so heartbroken. People are so angry. It's gonna get violent. And instead, he stood up on the back of a flatbed truck without notes, and he gave this speech that we're gonna watch a minute of right now. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. Sometimes reminding us who we are is a big dramatic cinematic moment and it comes from a leader that has a big platform and a national stage. Uh, but sometimes Reminding someone who they are is much smaller and history won't remember it, but it is no less powerful. Um, guys, this week has been a really weird and hard week for me personally. Um, Wednesday was my last day at my job. And in the middle of that, I have been stressed and anxious and overwhelmed and knowing that there's a lot of people that count on me. And as a person who associates a lot of my identity with my vocation, it's been messing with me. I mean, has anybody else ever felt that way? Anybody else ever had this moment? Walk through what I'm walking through right now? In the middle of all of that, uh, my wife has been my counselor and partner and sounding board as I've navigated through all of this. And on Monday night, I was, uh, grumpy and overwhelmed and trying to tie up all these loose ends to wrap up 
the work that I was doing and I'm sitting at the table in the kitchen on my computer and my wife's running point on bedtime with our three kids. And I hear sound coming from my daughter's room. And my first thought, I told you I was grumpy. My first thought is like, we've been, she's been putting the kids to bed for like 20 minutes. What is taking so long? And then I walk to my daughter's room as I hear singing, and this is what I see. That is my wife, who is a leader in our family, reminding me of our family's why. She's doing it in a way that's subtle, that's indirect, but a way that she knows that I will hear it and feel it and experience it. She's, she's calling me to who we are as a family and reminding me that the things that matter in the kingdom of God can't be touched by my job title or my paycheck. Sometimes, when a leader reminds us of our why, it's big and dramatic, and sometimes it's a family sing-along, but great leaders remind us of our why. They call forth the best in us. They speak to the imago Dei, the image of God that's present in all of us. And they say, this is who you are, and this is why you were made. And I know right now you feel all caught up and the winds are swirling and you don't remember who you are, but I remember and I'm gonna talk to that guy in your heart right now. That's what leaders do. So you might not feel like you have a megaphone or a platform or a big opportunity to tell a bunch of people something big and inspiring, but do you have a living room? Do you have a friend? Do you have a mom? Do you have a daughter? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a coworker? Do people come to you with problems and need counsel? Do people vent to you? Does anyone in your life use you as a listening ear? As the people of God, we get to participate. We get to share in the work that God is doing here on earth. We get to share in his why. And part of that means that we get to speak to the best in people, even when they don't see it themselves. And we get to call forth the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. We get to call that out of people and bring out the best in people. 
And that's all of us. Sometimes there are things in the kingdom of God that that's something, this is a mission that one person has that maybe another person doesn't have. But all of us get to do this. We all get to be vessels of the Holy Spirit that unlock something in someone else's heart that they didn't know was there. But the reverse of this can be true as well. I find in my own life that too often, in a moment where, where as the writer of Hebrews would put it, um, what I should be doing is spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, too often I can just sort of give in to pettiness and grievance and blame others, or sometimes we blame whole other groups of people for the problems we face. In a, in a moment with a friend who's venting, it's easier to gossip or blame someone else than it is to have a hard conversation to spur them on toward love and good deeds. And I think I see this happening in small moments, you know, in living rooms and water coolers and text message threads. But if I'm being honest, I also see it happen in big moments in our culture and in our politics. So remember this, leaders, real leaders, leaders worth being, leaders worth following, They remind us of who we are and they speak to that. And who we are, all of us, is children of God. So be that leader. In whatever platform you have, remind the people who are listening to you of their why. Nehemiah does this throughout the story and that part of our mission as the people of God hasn't changed. So let's talk a little bit more about our why. There's this really great TED Talk. um, And if you don't know what a TED Talk is, It's when a group of really self-important people get together, usually from Silicon Valley, and they just talk a lot, and then they congratulate each other on their talking. But sometimes there's something really good that comes out of it, and I think this is a great example. Uh, It's called Start With Why, and the premise is really simple, but it's stuck with me. It's basically this. These circles or how someone communicates anything important, a person or a company or a brand or a family or whatever. This is how we communicate things that are important. And we're gonna be talking about this for a while, so I would encourage you, write it down, draw these circles in in a way that you think it's gonna resonate with you throughout the week. Um, This is a, a powerful image and we're gonna be unpacking it for a while. So, everyone knows what they do. You know what you do. You know what you did today. You know what you did yesterday. You know what you do every day, for the most part. Some know how they did it. They know what makes the process that allowed them to do the thing they were gonna do unique or special or important. Very few know why they did it. And as we communicate, we tend to start with the thing that we understand the best, and then you sort of move to the thing you understand the least. And so most people, most brands, communicate from the outside in, because I really understand this and I only kinda understand this, so I'm gonna start here. So he compares Apple to Dell, and this is like a 15-year-old TED Talk, so just pretend Dell's like still a thing, because I didn't wanna try to think of a new company. Um, And he compares the way they communicate who they are, and he says, this is how Dell sells computers. We make great computers. They're beautifully designed, Simple and easy to use. You wanna buy one? Maybe. Maybe if I like already planned on buying one, maybe if I was like already at Best Buy and I'd like wanted a computer, sure, maybe. And then he says, this is how Apple sells. 
Everything we do, we do it because we believe in challenging the status quo and we believe in thinking differently. The way that we express that, challenging the status quo, is we make everything we do beautifully designed, simple, and easy to use. We just happen to make the world's best computers or phones or software or whatever it is they're selling. Can you feel that difference? People respond to why in a way that they don't respond to what or how. I'm actually not as interested in what you do or how you do it until I understand why you do it. Now here's how I see Nehemiah utilizing this principle 2,500 years earlier. There's this new thing starting. The wall is built and with it, there's an opportunity to turn over a new leaf and say, this is who we are now. This is, there's just all this momentum and excitement and optimism about what Israel is and could be. And in that moment, Nehemiah is saying, let's not take one step. Let's not throw one party. Let's not get lost in the busyness and the minutia of how and, and what until we marinate in our why. And then out of that, we will figure out how and what. But we are going to start with why we are a people in the first place, why this wall even matters, why are we here? And the way he answers that question is he says, let's open our Bible. I'm struck by this verse, uh, Nehemiah 8.2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Men and women and all who were able to understand. And so as I'm putting those categories together, that third category to me is kids. It's teenagers. It's the, the people that aren't like traditionally the leaders of the community yet. Maybe it's like non-Hebrew first language speakers. I think a call went out and they said, guys, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna open our Bibles together and we're gonna interpret it together and try to figure it out. Anybody you think might be able to understand it, bring them. And then if we jump to verse eight, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Older people and younger people united around the word of God, the why of their people, pursuing the truth of God's word, getting into it together, figuring it out, interpreting it together and for one another. This is Nehemiah establishing a multi-generational church on the first day of this new Israel. And I think in this cultural national moment that we're living in right now, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of unity. Does anybody else feel that? We feel divided on so many different fault lines, on political fault lines, on racial fault lines, but also on generational lines. I feel that personally. Do you guys ever feel like you're looking at an event with someone who's older or younger than you and you're seeing two completely different things that mean two completely different things? I think generationally we're, we're too divided have grace with me here, but if, we're, if I'm painting with really broad strokes, sometimes I feel like older folks think young people don't work as hard. They don't listen. They don't appreciate what they have. They're self-obsessed. They're, you know, always on their phones. Sometimes I think 
that younger people don't think older folks understand modern culture or they don't even really want to. That they're just set in their ways. That they're content to give overly simple solutions to problems that are actually really complex. That they don't know how to set up their Wi-Fi networks. <laughs> that they're still calling instead of texting for some reason. If I'm being honest, I feel that divide. Ask my dad how good I am at taking his advice without chafing or pushing back or telling him that, I, that he doesn't understand. He'll tell you. As I sat with this idea of Nehemiah using this moment to get everyone together, old folks and young folks together, to remind them of their why, to remind them of who they are, I thought about this dynamic both in our culture at large, but also specifically at this church, Cornerstone Fellowship in 2018. Because the next 10 years or so of this church are gonna be really interesting. My dad is the senior pastor, my dad is Steve. And he's not gonna be the senior pastor forever. He's not gonna do it for 100 more years. We're gonna have to figure out how we transition and become this multi-generational pillar of the community after he's not the guy that's up here most weekends. And obviously this, this transition, leadership transition has been happening basically since the day we started the church in every different ministry, in every different facet. But if I'm being honest, I look around this room and I think there are a lot of young people that aren't here. I see a lot of faces that are older than me. And that's great, you should be here, I want you here. But I also want my friends here. My friends need Jesus. And we need to make space for them. David says it like this in Psalm 78. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of our Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law of Israel. The psalmist here is calling to something that happened a long time ago. He's saying, even before me, this is who God was, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. The psalmist is one of those children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children that they would put their trust in God, that they would not forget his deeds and keep his commands. The older generation passing on to the new generation, this is who God is. So here's my point. On behalf of the younger folks in the room, the people that eventually will take up the mantle of leadership for this church, eventually over time with discernment, this isn't like a moment that's happening right now, but eventually, we need you to remind us of our why. Those of you that have sat at the feet of Jesus for longer than I have, that longer than my peers have, longer than Steve Ingold or Becky or Ryan Bicker or Billy or any of the folks, we need you to remind us of our why. We need you to sit and steep in it. We need you to demonstrate the faithfulness that I think your generation does better than mine. Show us that. But we need you to stay in the center of this diagram. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Jesus doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. But culture does. And so therefore, the way that we will translate the message of Jesus from here out into how and what 
will change. It has to change. It's already changed. The things that worked when this church started 25 years ago, some of those things don't work anymore. And the things that work today aren't gonna work in 10 years or five years or 20 years. But the thing that stays the same is in here. And so if the older generation can sit in the why and then pass the why on to us and then trust us to translate that into how and what, into tactics, into ministries, we will repair the fabric of the East Bay. And not just today, but tomorrow. My kids will be doing it too. But the problem, guys, is that we spend so much time bickering about stupid stuff out here. I'm gonna take a minute now to talk about some of the stupid stuff that we bicker about. Here's my hope. We can settle it all right now and then only talk about the important stuff. Here's why I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to talk about this. Number one, I'm young-ish. However, I am also bald and I have three kids. So on one hand, I know how to use my phone. On the other hand, I have said because I said so very recently. <laughs> so I've got my foot in both camps here, guys. <clears throat> All right, young people, I'm gonna start with you. You do not know as much as you think you know. Amen. Can you, careful with the amens, I'm coming for you too. <laughs> can you, young people, can you just try to imagine for a second that maybe someone older than you has experienced some stuff and seen some stuff and learned some stuff that might look a little bit like your stuff and help you with your stuff? Come on, old people know stuff but old people, can you please, for the love, stop pretending like you know everything? <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. Let me give you a window into watching a movie in the Matson House circa 2000. It's, there's a movie on, doesn't matter which movie, let's see, a movie with like a big twist, let's, Mission Impossible, I don't know, something like that. And we're all watching the movie quietly, eating popcorn, and then my mom, as she is wont to do right after the big twist, will ask some big, open-ended, unanswerable question. <laughs> like, how did they even think of that? And then it'll be quiet for a few seconds, because obviously there's no answer to that question. But then my dad will start answering the question. And he's like, oh, there's this event that happened five years ago, and then probably, and then it starts with a spec script, and then there's a treatment, and this is how brainstorming works at a movie studio. He doesn't know any of that. <laughs> but he's doing that thing that specifically old men do. Like, women, you're off the hook here. Old men will start a sentence with zero confidence and end it with all of the confidence in the world. <laughs> Knock it off. Actually, it's kind of funny. You don't have to knock it off. <laughs> Guys, we bicker about the stupidest things. We've got like old people over here and then like young people over here and we just camp out with our peers and like throw rocks at each other and you don't understand. No, you don't understand. We do it about everything, like, like technology. So on one hand, we've got my peers who are over here who can't experience a single moment of their lives until it's on Instagram. And they're just like, I can't wait to remember this later with comments. I don't actually know what's happening right now, but it seems good. I actually, this is a very real thing that I'm not exaggerating at all. I have actual anxiety that something will happen 
and my friends will hear about it on Twitter, and three minutes later, they will ask me about it, and I won't even have an opinion on something that happened three minutes ago. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? <laughs> but then, on the other side of the spectrum, older folks. I had a friend's mom come into town this week with printed MapQuest directions <laughs> on paper. Also, how are you guys afraid of Uber? All you wanted to do is talk about how you hitchhiked everywhere in the 70s. <laughs> it was so great. You won't get in an Uber. What's wrong with you? We do it about parenting. I've got my friends over here who are like, I don't say no to my kids. Um, you wanna run with scissors? You can run with scissors when you're 18. <laughs> Notice I didn't say no. You wanna drink bleach? You can't not drink. Am I repressing you? I didn't, do you feel repressed? I'm very sorry, it's my fault, my fault. Mommy's fault, sorry. But then over here we got the older folks that are like, you got a parenting problem? More spanking. <laughs> Spare the rod, spoil the child. It's in Proverbs, which is a book we should read literally. That's why it's called Proverbs. We do it on work and career stuff because we've got my friends over here that are like, I have been giving my heart and soul to this company for like four months and I've only received <laughs> two promotions and one raise. I don't even think they're seeing me. <laughs> Which is like barely self-parody. Like I almost feel exactly that way. <laughs> but then over here we got the older folks that are like, young people don't work hard. I know college costs like 20 times what it used to, and I bought my house for $27, and now it's worth $5 million, but <laughs> work hard. Stop eating avocado toast. <laughs> On that note, um, not all of the problems in our culture can be traced to the fact that I don't know how to change a tire, okay? I should know how to change a tire, but it doesn't mean something deeper about me and stop pretending like it does. Guys, the stuff that we fight about is so dumb. We have to knock it off, it's so stupid. We fight about stupid stuff and that keeps us from connecting on really important stuff. A throwaway joke about how young people don't work hard keeps a young person from trusting an old person to tell him something important. Let's stop it. Let's just talk about the things that matter. Let's talk about the character of Jesus and the work that he's put before us. Let's talk about partnering together to build the kingdom of God. Every generation has struggled with this. Every, the old people now were young people once and their old people didn't get it either, but let's be better at it than they were. Let's trust each other. Let's engage each other with humility and let's repair the fabric of the East Bay together, old people and young people. Nehemiah and the Church of Israel established on the first day after they build the wall are modeling this for us. All right, let's finish chapter eight together. So after the people open the book of the law, it's obvious that they're paying attention because they rediscover this festival called Sukkot. And this festival is really cool. It's, it celebrates the time when the Israelites were in the desert and they lived in tents and God's presence was with them. And it's a time about, it's about relying on God and remembering that it's not about a building, the temple, or it's not about a wall. That doesn't, it's about the presence of God. But the fun part is everybody creates these little tents like in their living room or their backyard and they, like, they do like indoor camping or backyard camping. And kids love it. 
And it's also the last festival of the, Is- of the Israelite calendar year. And so what that means is that there's a lot of prayer for rain because the rainy season is about to come and they need rain for the harvest that's gonna come in the spring. So there's a lot of teaching about rain and dryness and drought and thirst. And there's a lot of like water metaphors that the Bible teachers are really getting into. That's what's happening during Sakat. And the cool part about being a Christian and seeing the fullness of this story is after Ezra and Nehemiah are long gone, God's people were still celebrating Sakat. And they're celebrating it in Jerusalem where Nehemiah and his people were, like probably pretty close to the same spot where they're rediscovering Sakat. Jesus steps onto the scene in the middle of this festival, on the last day of the festival, John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So if you've spent the last 30 minutes or so as I'm talking about your why and we're talking about living big lives and asking big questions and I'm showing Robert F. Kennedy clips and I'm talking about Churchill and all you're thinking is that you're jealous or sad or insecure because you don't know what your why is or if you feel like maybe at one point you did and now you've just kind of been sucked into what and how and the fire that was burning in you at one point isn't burning as hot as it used to. I wanna tell you that Jesus sees you and he's not disappointed with you, he's not mad at you, but he is speaking to you right now. See, if you don't know what your why is, I don't know either, but I know who does. The mission of the people of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. So spend your time marinating in the character of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the person who stood up in the middle of all this religious festivities and some people were getting it and some people were missing the point. And he said, guys, do you wanna know why everything matters? Do you wanna know what all of this is about? Do you wanna know why you matter? I will tell you, come to me. So my encouragement, church, this week is let's go to Jesus and let's ask for our why. I think too often we spend our time in the presence of God, the author of the universe, the one with all of the answers, asking him small how and what questions. Sometimes those questions are urgent and pressing and Jesus wants those questions from us, but what he really wants from us is the why. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that all things work together for good for them who love the Lord, who are called according to his good purpose. You're probably familiar with this verse because we abuse it in the kingdom of God. We abuse it because we start the sentence and we don't finish it. Someone will be going through something hard and we'll just say, all things work together for good. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, it's gonna be fine. But I think that comfort only go skin deep when we give it to people because deep down we know that there's something bigger and deeper that we're actually called to. We know that all things work together for good. That is the what. But if we finish the sentence for those who are called according to his good purpose, that is the why. Jesus is saying when you are, or Paul is saying when you are focused on the why, when you are called according to his good purpose, the what works itself out. Jesus is totally in the what and the how. He cares about it, but he is the why. So this week, let's ask him about our why.
And it's gonna be hard because why prayers are harder and scarier because they are bigger and they have bigger answers. Why questions have answers about moving your family and switching your job or about rebuilding your marriage or realigning your priorities. But let's pray those prayers. Pray them in your family, pray them in your marriage, pray them in your life group. Your life group gets together every week. You make time to do it. Why? Not why do we have life groups at Cornerstone? That's a different answer. Why is your life group a life group? Why is your marriage a marriage? Why are you friends with that person? Asking that question and sitting at the feet of Jesus for our answer grounds us because the peace of God, that peace that we all want, the peace that passes understanding is found in the why. And when we walk in the certainty of our why, the what and the how are a lot less scary. So this week, ask why. Love you guys.